thoughtful book club podcast featuring two friends. I'm Travis, joined as always by my co-host Amanda. Hey Amanda. Hello. Amanda, we're here today with one simple mission, to recommend a work of literature wholeheartedly. That's what you've discovered, listener, a book recommendation episode. So if you've never tuned into us before, you are in literally the perfect place because we're going to try and persuade you to read a book today. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find our Social media feeds up at Instagram and Facebook, at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word, so give us a follow there. And, you know, rate and review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you found us. We appreciate those things. Tell your friends and family, etc. I kind of, I don't know, I feel like I'm speaking with kind of a hesitation in my voice, Amanda, because we just finished a barn burner of a book club about this book, <laughs> which you chose, which is called Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Tay Yamashita. Now, I gave you a prompt to pick something. You know, I'm really starting to lose the plot on these prompts, but if you're a first-time listener, the way the book club works is one of us gives the other person a prompt, and we rotate back and forth. So, for example, I gave Amanda a prompt for this book, and she chose it, and that's how our book choosing system works. I, why did I? What did I give you for this one? Was it to pick something that was made of small parts? Yep. Okay, that was my memory of it. I just wanted to make sure that was right. So Amanda chose this, which is indeed a collection of many small parts, some short stories, some essays, a couple recipes in there, or a collection of them. That, that was a kind of a fun bit. But Amanda, why don't you talk us through, before we begin the full book recommendation, why don't you talk us through why you chose this book? Um, so I chose this book because I love Jane Austen, and mm-hmm. this is a, um, the title itself even is, is a play on Jane Austen. Right. And um, coming off of um, Native Speaker and even Blood, Bones, and Butter, those are uh, Native Speaker being like an immigrant experience. Yeah. Um, And then Blood, Bones, and Butter being a memoir. It's like the, the idea of identities and stuff like that. And so this one is dealing with Japanese American uh, specifically the third generation Japanese Americans. And so I thought that would be an interesting continuation of, of the idea of identity. Early in our new podcast run is this new rebranded reformed pod. You've been holding it down for the international audience and I deeply respect it. We do keep track of those <laughs> statistics, kind of those metrics in the background, just to make sure we're picking. I mean, our whole mission was to pick things that are really diverse and divergent. We don't want to we don't want to overlap in a genre for too long or with an author of a certain type or from a certain place even, or, you know, we're going to have preferences for British and American stuff since it's in English and everything, but yeah, you've been holding it down for us. So yeah, some really bold choices. This one was an incredibly bold choice, which we'll get into in the book recommendation right now. Before we start that officially, again, the title of this one we're going to be recommending is Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Te Yamashita. I'm going to read from the cover briefly. It says, in these buoyant and inventive stories, Karen Te Yamashita transfers classic tales across boundaries and questions what an inheritance, familial, cultural, emotional, artistic, really means. The stories of traversing class, race, and gender leap into our modern world with wit and humor. And a lot of those came from Jane Austen, as Amanda alluded to. Let's get to the actual recommendation here, Amanda. We begin with reading similes. This is when we compare what reading this book was like to something else. Go ahead, Amanda. What was reading this like? I said reading this is like playing WoW as a beginner. You got to explain um, World that. Of Warcraft. You got to assume that no <laughs> one. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> World of Warcraft. Um, 
So there's a lot to navigate um, and can seem overwhelming and happening way too fast at times. It's still fun, but it becomes more enjoyable as you get used to the controls, the chat boxes, the ability to chat, the timing of the keys while fighting, etc., etc. And it's the same with this collection, I think. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. fast, it's, um, it can seem overwhelming, and there is a lot to navigate, um, but I think that once you hang on to something that pulls you through, that that makes it more enjoyable as a read. For sure. Yeah. And that's, I think we could even broaden. I, of course, love and appreciate the wow illusion as someone who is deep, as deep in it as you could be at one point in my life. <laughs> and I would say it's for many people, maybe in our audience too, it's just maybe all video games look that way to someone. You know, if you hand a controller mm. to someone who's never played video games before, I mean, talk about an alien object. That may as well be some kind of artifact from, you know, an ancient civilization or something. To You know, for a first yeah. time, you know, what, what are these sticks doing sticking out and all that anyway? So, no, I think it's a great analogy. But I th- we could even broaden it to maybe just playing games for some people. Anyway, yeah, yeah. perfect simile. Way to go, World of Warcraft. You've, you've stayed alive. Maybe we'll turn this into a <laughs> WoW pod at some point now. Those already <laughs> exist, and we, I have no interest in contributing to the conversation. My simile <laughs> for this book, reading this book, I said reading this book is like having a conversation with somebody who is visibly wearing noise-canceling headphones, and so... You're, you're doing a lot of mouthing. You're trying to make something out. You might even pretend by the end that you've kind of had an exchange. You might nod along or just kind of, and I think in this analogy, by the way, maybe I'm the one wearing the headphones and you're kind of, you know, you're looking, you're giving eye contact, you're pretending like you're engaged, but at some point, fundamentally, you just know the conversation's not what it should be. You know, you just wish the other person mm-hmm. would take those headphones off and you could really get this, get this business going, get this communication going. And at times I just felt like I was on mute or something in this. And I, I think a lot of this worked. I also think this is the first book recommendation where I'm going to have a a good number of caveats, I would say, or kind of, I'm going to be recommending with some exceptions or something. And Mm -hmm. I just felt like there were parts of this that I couldn't process. I think like I, it was intended to or something because, you know, the artistry and the writing and everything is on display, but there were parts that were missing for me to connect. Yeah. So that's that's my simile for this one. Let's give our I like that. Yeah, let's give our scripted pitches, huh? This is the part yeah. of the book recommendation where we have we've prepared writing in advance, so this is scripted. We're each gonna give our kind of prepared statement now and try and convince you to read this book with us for the next two weeks. Amanda, why don't you start with yours? What's your scripted pitch? Sure. Um so I'm gonna start off with a quote okay. from from one of the stories. <clears throat> oh, I'm tired of writing about American children. So now you will write about Japanese-American children? Of course not. Who would read such books? That's from page 125. Mm -hmm. In this conversation between two characters in Yamashita's short story, Giri and Gaman, Karen Tay Yamashita ironically calls attention to the purpose of her writing, at least as far as I've gathered. What does it mean to be Sansei, to the Sansei themselves, to the Nisei, to the Issei, and to the West? These definitions, perceptions, and ideas include many facets that are explored throughout this collection. This is no light read. The first half is fairly academic in tone and style, while the second half is more creative and playful, but still full of the same topics explored in the first half. Don't be intimidated by its academic nature, however. There are some real gems in this collection that are both thought-provoking and entertaining. Approach this collection without any expectations about form, but with expectations to allot some time for stewing over each piece, 
and you'll find this a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, stewing is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that final sentence. Yeah. Really got to be prepared to ponder, do some pondering, and maybe even some research. I would say the back half, which is based on a lot of Jane Austen writing, which she goes out of her way to label them too, right? Did I make mm-hmm. that up? She does that. Yeah, no, she does. Okay, yeah, good. She, yeah. she labels it. Yeah, like a, like a good academic that she clearly must be, right? She's very thorough. But no, I think even Googling the plot of those as a pre-reading would do some good favors, I think, here. That's a good idea. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And I did. I was almost about to do it, but I kind of wanted to see how they held up on their own. So I did not do that when I read. Okay, my scripted pitch for this book. Reading Sansei and Sensibility will be, for most people, I think, an academic exercise first. And that is okay. I think there's no simpler pleasure, though I admit it can often feel imposing when you do this, but I think there's no simpler pleasure than picking up a book you know, maybe at the library, the Barnes and Noble or whatever, local bookstore, sorry. Um, but because you want to be better or because you want to understand the world in all capital, like the world capital W, you want to get something, you want to have a realization and understanding. Many parts of this collection can help you accomplish that, I think. I mean, heck, two of the pieces in the first half of this book are just straightforward nonfiction essays. The first is about the history of strong women in her kind of family's immigrant story coming from Japan. And the other one is about kind of Japanese culture's international commercialization, which I thought had some witty stuff in it. Very thoughtful and, you know, accessible. No graduate degree required for those. Uh, But I'm certain I cannot offer the same praise to her bouts with fiction. I think that the short stories are ambitious, clever, and culturally celebratory, which now let me read what I mean by that. I think they're overstuffed. I think they're abrupt and at times confusing. And I think they are heavily referential. I can say that I learned some new facts about Japanese immigrant experience for sure. There's some really good insight about how it's depressing for just about anyone to slide into kind of middle, upper middle class America. There's some poignant social observation on that in this, and I think that works well. She has insight and criticism to offer that to an under, very under-examined segment of America And I think there's a chapter in the middle that hits it almost perfectly, but it's a really brief, it's just a little commentary on recipes and showing how the food intermingles. It was compact, funny, and I think even pained at times. And you could read that in under five minutes, but that is as pure as it gets. I think the rest is going to require a lot more attentiveness, a lot more thoughtfulness, and frankly, some generosity on you, the reader's part. You have to come to this with a pretty generous mind, willing to reread, willing to do some unpacking. The Jane Austen stuff is it's work. I I felt it was work by the end. I told Amanda that before we recorded it. I did not look forward to finishing it, though I can't say I didn't learn a lot and had a lot of intellectual stimulation. But that's what it is. I'll end by saying, to adapt Jane Austen novels into short stories is an admirable project. Admirable projects aren't always successful projects, so I think approach this with just a touch of caution. It's my final word. Yeah, I think good advice. And I I do agree with you that some like her nonfiction stuff actually is probably the most clear Mm -hmm. um, in its purpose. And and I did actually as well. I'm glad that you mentioned the recipe section because I really enjoyed that section too. Yeah, the the last sentence in each recipe. It's just great. Little (laughs) snap of wit at the end. Just perfect. Yeah, Loved it. Yeah, loved it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Enjoyed that part a lot. I think it's ironic coming off, not coming off of now native speaker. Was that two books ago? 
Yes. I think it was two, two-ish books ago. A book that we both praised for, I think it was in the research we learned that his editor or something told him to make it a memoir, Why Are You Doing This Novel? By the mm-hmm. end, we found its novel qualities admirable, that it played with that stuff well. I have to say that I'm get, pulling the twist on this one. I would love to read this woman's me- memoir, maybe, or something. I don't know. Just something mm-hmm. nonfiction, maybe more grounded, less ambitious in the literary sense. Can't believe I have to be the one to say that, but I just, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I felt like it buckled under its ambitions, but you know, it depends on the kind of reader you are. Of course, I occasionally find that kind of exploration fascinating. And I know we talked about this in our old review show, but we'll say it again here. I, there, I think it's really valid to engage with art that you might not love or connect with that strongly. It'll help you deepen your understanding of certain things, not only your own taste, but just of an artistic project or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and not to say that all of the entire thing was like a failure or anything like that. I enjoyed no, several no. of these pieces and, yep. and, I, and even like the Jane Austen I had, there were a few that I enjoyed as well. Um, but I can understand like, if you're not, if you're not into Jane Austen, I don't know, mm-hmm. you, you would have better. <laughs> yeah. And I think, too, the final word on it, maybe, well, not final, because we're not done with the recommendation yet. We're still going to try and persuade you. But the final thing I would say for this segment just would be we we have, as part of this whole pod project, we would kill this book in terms of covering it if we felt it went, you know, <laughs> really poorly. I don't think at any moment while engaging with this, reading this, did I think, oh, I've got to text Amanda, we got to pick another book. You know, we're, we work ahead, so it wouldn't be disastrous to do that. And I do feel like I would still say something if I felt that way. I, I didn't feel that mm-hmm. way. There's a, a lot of things to recommend about this. Hopefully I just covered some without seeming too negative, but it, it, it does have the most caveats. I would want to give the strongest word of warning of all the things we've covered so far, um, because yeah. this can be this is an intimidating thing to find randomly on the on your local bookstore bookshelf and just think, cool cover, let's do it. That's um, You've chosen something, I think, intimidating. In yeah, its construction. It is very academic in nature. Yeah. The, the complete opposite of Evelyn Hugo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. T- so true. Okay. Let's move to our final two segments to recommend. I think at this point, everyone's turned this off. They're probably just spooked and we, we failed. But that's okay. We will continue. Come back. Listen. No, please. No, we'll continue because we, we have a format here. Uh, let's do the quotes for clarification. Why don't you throw yours out first? This is just when we give a quote from the work to give you a sense of the style. We've talked about that a ton by now. So go ahead with your quote. Sure. Mine is from page 124, um, which is um, the Austin half. After all, mm-hmm. this was a suburb gerrymandered by Nisei real estate brokers turned politicians. It was, well, let's say post camp, a safe place where Sansei had the opportunity to grow up in camp without being in camp. Um, so I chose this particular quote because um, it does mention camp as in the internment camp, where we'll see that that pops up quite often in these writings, um, specifically how it affects the third generation which is the sansei um and it's very tongue-in-cheek and the style is more if we look at the the sentence style it's more like a talking presentation rather Mm -hmm. than like your typical storytelling yeah so i think that this one is uh 
pretty spot on as far as like her general style. I would say that in the Austin stuff, she is a little bit more playful in some of her writing, but um, definitely overall the tone is more academic and serious and definitely more of her um, educating us on, on what it means to be Sansei. Yeah. I chose one too from the Austin section. This is on page 167 from a story called The Persuasions, which is a band. This is about the band. So, a little background on the so-called situation. Fred Fuyuchi and Harvey Senshi grew up buddies since grammar school. Additional buddies were Jimmy Mamida and Kenji Nojo. They all lived within a five-block radius spiraling from the then-center of Japanese America, which means we're talking inner city. They, if they had angrier political bents, they might have been another colored formation of the Panthers, if more delinquent in Asian gang. But they were your B-plus sansei, staying cool but out of trouble. They addressed each other like badass pirates. Now I'm going to skip to the end. This foursome in the gravity of the inner city crooned, choreographed, and styled themselves into the persuasions. Think it over. Someone had to show that sanseis were in the groove. Couple things here odd tonal stuff and it's just not that consistent someone had they were in the groove so a little it's just it's conversational like you said but i don't think it maintains that kind of tone so it's i just wanted to pick this quote to show it's dabbling with with stuff with stylistic choices i just don't think they always work so there's that however what do we get in here too that that quote about them having political you know maybe could be the panthers a nice illusion that also kind of paints them really clearly then to immediately switch back in the next sentence to like but they're b plus sansei they don't want to you know they're trying to i think that's that's the kind of commentary kind of subtle observational immigrant experience stuff that she offers really well it's she portrays their the community around them the lives they lead the kind of personalities they have in a pretty full way that's pretty Mm. engaging too so you know there's insights in here too that i thought i i enjoyed but it's then there's those swings that i just don't think pay off that well at the same time yeah i i love that quote too the the comparison to the panthers um and I just thought that that was really cleverly done. I do like some of her comparisons to um, throughout her writing. She does use a lot of comparisons anyway, but it's true. I think that that's where she shines in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And I, I could have pulled another quote that was maybe a little more dense to show some of the more difficulties reading it. But yeah, no, I think that one too. I mean, there were enough references in there too, though, to show I, that the onus is kind of on the reader in a lot of it. It's not... I think the structural stuff is where the Jane Austen thing becomes a real academic project, frankly, for the reader that you just have to, there's, there's some blanks in there that you have to maybe fill in with some Austen study or knowledge of plot. But I think that at the core of it, the writing, it has some promise and moments to enjoy. Let's conclude the recommendation here, Amanda, with the literary knapsack. We are in total alignment this week. We are, by the way, this is the segment where we give you a piece of literary advice to take into it. So if you, at this point, want to read this collection or this book, we're going to give you a piece of advice. I'll have you start off since it was your idea. Go ahead with the the knapsack. Yeah. um, This week I chose Illusion. Yes. Which is a reference, typically brief, to a person, place, thing, event, or other literary work that um, the reader is presumably familiar, so it should be Mm -hmm. really well-known stuff. Um, As a literary device, Illusion allows a writer to compress a great deal of meaning and significance into a word or phrase, like in your quote about the the panther. That one in 
that one is an illusion. True. However, illusions are only effective to the extent that they are recognized and understood by the reader and that they are properly inferred and interpreted by the reader. So that I, I included that last sentence specifically because in um, she does use illusions in almost every single piece of her writing here. Mm-hmm. I mean, her entire last half of the... Right. collection is an allusion to Jane Austen's novels. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, so sometimes it, it, the allusions in her writing tend to be um, very academic in nature. And if you are not already familiar, like if it, sometimes it feels like you have to be an English major in order to get some of those. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But Yeah. The only Some thing, of them work. yeah, I think the only <laughs> thing I would add, d- good definition. The only thing I pulled from the Penguin Literary Dictionary is, well, it's kind of what you said, right? Using illusions, a writer tends to assume an established literary tradition, a, com- a body of common knowledge with an audience, sharing that tradition, and an ability on the part of the audience to pick up the references. That's crucial here. And granted, she does reference things a lot out loud. There was a paragraph we talked about in one of the book clubs where. She makes a reference to both J.D. Salinger, but then also the movie The Graduate, and I think one other thing in there. It's just there's Americana kind of bouncing around all over the stories, and it can become overwhelming if you, like us, want to assume all of those things have a, a place, a meaning, you know, you want to put thought into those. It can become overwhelming for sure. Not not only to mention that, but then Penguin's Literary dic- um, Dictionary sorry, mentions, I think, six different types of illusion and their type e is called structural illusion when the author borrows or kind of mimics the structure of another famous piece of work they mentioned some poetic examples i think between milton and somebody whoever (laughs) some of those titans of you know english literature but this Mm -hmm. the entire back half of this book is structural illusions to jane austen novels so if you don't if you have zero baseline knowledge of those I truly want to say at this point, having discussed them with you thoroughly, gone through the book, we've already recorded all our stuff on this one, I would say it is not even optional. You must read Wikipedia summaries before reading those short stories. That is my, that's my firm stance, as that's obviously an opinion. I'm not, she doesn't tell you to do that, and she's, the author has final say. But I feel confident saying that is what you have to do if you're going to read these, the enjoyment you would otherwise get out of them. I don't know if any of the other elements would be satisfying enough on their own to recommend it. I think if you can, if you're willing to go that final step, the complexity here can bring its own joy and the writing holds up a lot of the time. But yeah, that I would say it's, it's homework at this point. That's required bonus reading. In my opinion, feel free to tag in and agree or disagree, but that's where my stance is. I think at this point, yeah, I'm. I am a huge Jane Austen fan, so I don't. Mm-hmm. I I definitely felt like I got a lot from it because I am familiar with Jane Austen. So I'm not. I don't know how much a person without having read at least one Jane Austen novel mm-hmm. yeah. would approach those stories. But um, I think that her illusion heavy writing too it's it's meant to be geared towards people who are more academically minded um people who are either in college like actively in college or people who 
um, are take a, a particular interest in in literary studies on their own. Mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. that for leisurely reading, she specifically is not gearing her writing towards that. Mm-hmm. At least in this collection. Yeah, and in our own history of our of the lightly literary podcast, the new format. This is an interesting one to slot in. I'm completely glad that we read it, as we always say. I think we could talk about just about anything, and we did, and I thought it was a really worthwhile talk. If you're hesitant about this one, and you're hearing all this thinking, well, this is the easiest skip of my life. I'll just (laughs) check in in two weeks and see what they do next. I guess all I can offer is that we're pretty thorough in the discussions. Amanda's a Jane Austen kind of expert and we, I think, had pretty excellent chats on both the part one and part two about the collection, what was working, what wasn't, things we you know picked up on. So as always, we're here to guide you through it. We're here to talk about the book and the work. I think we bring our insights to bear in a, in a really positive, productive way in the episodes. And I think, you know, we're critical at times for sure, but hopefully it comes with the thoughtfulness that you'd expect from our podcast. So I think we did our diligence. And yeah, as I mentioned, in a very broad kind of artistic philosophy kind of way, yeah, good to engage with things that you know you may not love, but you can still take a lot out of it. That's, yeah, a good place to end it. Amanda, final thoughts on Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Te Yamashita? Uh, Nope, I'm good. Excellent. Okay, well, that's the recommendation. If we did not persuade you, and gosh, can't imagine that we didn't we put out such a siren call or siren song for this one. Yeah, that's I'll put that on me. But no, I, I do hope you join us. I, I made my case already. But if we didn't persuade you, we have other books chosen coming up in the in the coming weeks. So check in in two weeks. We'll be covering The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. That is historical. It's kind of a narrative nonfiction about the Chicago World's Fair, and murder. So join us. I know how many murder heads are out there, you serial killer fans, <laughs> true crime nuts, you podcasters. Like, we're trying. That's That counts. Anyway, after that, we're going to be covering Wild in America by David M. Friedman. That's Wild with an E. That's Oscar Wilde. It's a story of his celebrity. It's kind of, he's considered by some one of the earliest celebrities in America. So we'll study that idea. And then after that is Tracks by Lewis Erdrich, which is a Native American fiction story, I believe covering the early days of colonization of the U.S. I chose that, but as I mentioned earlier on a different pod, I've since forgotten the plot summary that I read of it or the reviews or recommendations I read of it, but it came highly recommended. And we'll talk more about that one in, you know, in about a month or so. Those are the books we have coming up. Please follow us, as I mentioned, on Instagram and Facebook. We're at the Lightly Literary Podcast. Rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Tell your friends and family. And you know what? Read a read a book that you're intimidated by this this week or this month. <laughs> pick up something yeah. that pick up something that might be a challenge, and we can help you through at least this one. Any final thoughts, Amanda? Uh, nope. Excellent. Okay. Well then. We'll sign off by saying, as always, that we will see you between the pages.